The word of the Lord from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Old Testament reading for today begins with Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 3, and says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. So there the people of Israel call upon God to do something and to show some muscle doing it. Rend the heavens, make the mountains quake, come to earth and knock some heads together. That's the kind of God you want. The one who shows his power and gets things done, who shows who's boss so that everybody knows that he's God and they better not mess with him. A lot of Israelites would love to see that because, at the moment, the surviving Israelites are living along the river in Babylon, far from home. They're exiles. They've seen their nation ravaged and Jerusalem destroyed. They've seen a lot of their fellow citizens slaughtered in the violence. And now they are in exile, far from home. They can say all they want that They're Israelites, descendants of Abraham, children of the promise and God's chosen people, but that doesn't seem to be doing them much good. For all that, they're conquered, and they're being assimilated into a pagan empire. And this is how whole nations disappear. But the faithful still cry out to God for deliverance. They confess that they've sinned, But now they are repentant, and since they are repentant, can't they expect God to do something, like maybe rend the heavens, come down and make the mountains quake at his presence? Shouldn't he reward them for their belated penitence? 
Well, God will do something in his time as promised. He returns a remnant of these people, his people, back to Jerusalem. It doesn't look like the mountain-quaking, heaven-rending intervention that they'd like to see. Instead, after the Persians conquer the Babylonians, it looks like Cyrus the emperor has this sort of odd idea to let the Jews return to Jerusalem. So at his decree, a decent trickle of people makes its way back to the ruins. They rebuild the city wall, they rebuild the temple, but nothing, nothing is close to what it used to be. In time, it's a functioning city again, and it grows, but the Israelites there are rarely on their own. First, it's the Greeks, then it's the Romans who rule Judea and oppress God's so-called chosen people. 500 years after that return from Babylon, the faithful few, they are still praying for the Lord to rend the heavens and come down. And eventually, the Lord does come down. What he does ought to make the nations tremble because he becomes man to save man. He is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He is wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger when one of those interminable Herods is the local ruler. He grows up and to begin his public ministry... He is baptized in the Jordan to announce to all that he is taking the place of sinners. And when he's baptized, the heavens open. They are not rent apart to let out a host of vengeful angels upon the earth. The heavens are open to let people in, to let in all who trust in Jesus. Ponder that. God becomes man to save man from sin by dying in man's place. God becomes man to die. That's even more astonishing than the prospect of God coming to wipe out his enemies. But while he is still fully God and hasn't lost one little bit of his divine nature or power... He's so fully man in his humility that he doesn't appear all that outstanding at all. Take our gospel reading, for instance. Jesus is about to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The crowds are about to wave their palm branches and shout their hosannas. They're about to acknowledge that he is the anointed one, the Messiah who is sent in the name of the Lord to save them from their sin. That's what we always remember about Palm Sunday. But out of the ten verses about the triumphal entry in the Gospel of Mark, have you noticed that more than half of them are devoted to the fact that Jesus has to borrow somebody's donkey to enter Jerusalem triumphantly? What sort of heaven-rending, mountain-quaking Messiah has to borrow somebody's donkey? I mean, sure, you can argue that as a creator who sustains all things, it's really his donkey. But it's also absolutely true that he's getting the donkey in order to fulfill the prophecy that he put in place. He could have one arranged already. It's not exactly streamlined, this donkey borrowing thing. If that's how things are, 
I'm actually kind of surprised that anyone is shouting hosannas along the way. Because if they're shouting that the rabbi on the borrowed donkey is the Christ who's going to save them, it's not because he looks the part. It's not because he's going to start knocking heads together and taking names. They're shouting he's the Messiah by faith. By faith because they believe the word that they have heard. Living by faith against sight is not an easy thing. Five days later, when Jesus is hanging on a cross, how many in the crowd will be shouting then, Blessed is he, for he clearly has come in the name of the Lord. And you'll note that it's there on Calvary that the mountains do shake because God has come to earth and died. And it's there certainly that true to prophecy his adversaries know his name. They've posted it above his head. This is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You and I now, we, we have the benefit of hindsight, right? We look at the return of the remnant from Babylon and we smile as we see God keeping his promises despite the faithlessness of man. Even after the Israelites disobeyed so badly that they ended up exiled in Babylon far away, God still kept his word and slipped them back to Jerusalem to keep the story on track. While they were crying out to God, do something, he was indeed doing something all along. Likewise, we look at the cross just days after the triumphal entry, and we can smile just a little because we know something that the Palm Sunday crowds likely didn't. Jesus' death was according to plan. His death in our place so that we might be forgiven. When the Palm Sunday crowds were shouting out, Hosanna, they were shouting out, do something, save us now. And in fact, the Lord was riding into Jerusalem to do something, namely to save them and us by the shedding of his own blood. Look, when people write stories and scripts about the defeat of evil, it often involves superheroes and drama and impressive feats and usually lots of explosions. It doesn't usually involve the protagonist having to borrow a donkey to get to his own crucifixion. A storyline like that doesn't really look like God is doing much at all. But he is. Today, the calendar rolls over and the new church year begins with this first Sunday in Advent. You might get more introspective around New Year's Eve after the next month of year review articles here and there. But for me, today is the day to assess where we are as the church in the world. We ended last year on last Sunday with a message that Christ is coming again in glory and we're waiting for that to happen. We begin this new year with a message that Christ is coming again in glory and we're waiting for that to happen. If nothing else, at least we're staying on message. You will, however, be tempted to get frustrated and demand that God get on the ball and do something. Nobody seems all that excited about the upcoming 12 months. 
There are two major wars going on, not to mention all the little ones around the globe, both of which involve the United States diplomatically and financially, and either of which could bloom to involve U.S. boots on the ground. We're in for a bruising presidential election as the domestic politics of scorched earth and conspiracies continue to stifle governance. And we're in for another round of experts who will tell you that their candidate is the Messiah, the other one is the Antichrist, and the nation will shatter and fall if you vote the wrong way. You're blessed with material things, good. It also means that you're worried about losing them. You're looking at the culture and noting that it hasn't just gotten more ungodly, but it just keeps getting weirder too. And that's more disturbing because you didn't mind the ungodly parts so much when they catered to your own personal sinful desires. You've got your fair share of personal matters that gnaw at you enough to keep you up at night. And if you don't, you're likely to manufacture anxieties just in order to be worried about something. And all of this, the devil never takes a day off. And in all of this, the evil one is trying to fray your nerves and your faith so that you end up demanding of God, why don't you do something? Careful. Demanding that God do something shows a huge problem with faith. It's a statement of impatience because faith trusts God's timeline. It's also a statement of doubt, doubt that God is at work as he has promised to be. And it's also a statement of ignorance because by now, he really ought to know better. He ought to know better because this is the Lord at work for your salvation when Jerusalem is destroyed and its inhabitants carried off and when the remnant trickles back to the devastation. This is the Lord at work when he's doing incredibly human things like borrowing donkeys and doing them incredibly perfectly and sinlessly to get to the cross for you. This is the Lord at work for your salvation when he dies in your place for your sin and is laid in the grave. Knowing all this, You also then know that God is at work just as he has promised. He's foremost at work to save sinners. Trusting his word, you know that while there is plenty of evil in the world, it would be far, far worse if the Lord did not restrain it. You know that just as he once whispered in the ear of Cyrus the emperor to send his people back to Jerusalem, he still makes use of an interesting collection of sinners in positions of authority to hold nations together, our own included. You know that, no matter how weird the culture gets, he's promised that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. You know that you have things to worry about losing because he keeps providing you with daily bread. More importantly, You know that once Jesus came down to save and the heavens opened to receive sinners, the heavens haven't closed and they won't. His death and resurrection saw to that, so you can be confident of his grace and life. Knowing that, 
the prayers of Hosanna, save us now, and come down from heaven, they need not be demands of doubt, but the confidence of faith. The Lord comes down from heaven to save again and again and again. With every baptism and absolution and holy communion, he is visiting to hand out his gifts of forgiveness and life and salvation. The means of grace may not look like much, but neither did a borrowed donkey, neither did a cross. This is God at work to save in a sinful world. The day will come when Christ returns in glory, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, his enemies included. For now, like Palm Sunday, he still comes humbly, and behold, you who were his enemy are now his beloved child. You know his name by grace. What is all the more remarkable is that he knows yours. Behold, Christ comes, and heaven is open to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.